Um, today we're in John 19, page 528, if you're out of the blue Bible. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Thank you, Genesee. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good. All right. We got Christine here. She is doing great. She was here 10 minutes early. She is feeling good. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor, and we are wrapping up this chosen deal. So we partnered with World uh, Mission, this place where we we're going to sponsor a child. They flipped it on its head. We went to a village in Ethiopia. We didn't go there literally because COVID and all the stuff. But this happened in the middle of the week there. There's a, a picture of them walking up to this big celebration. Uh, there's the kids there. And then the next picture here is them actually going to the wall where they get to see pictures of those of you who chose to be a part of this. And these kids got to choose you as a part of a partnership to really help this village where this ministry has been there for seven years. So we have the reveal envelopes out there. Make sure you grab them after this. Uh, it's going to be a sweet time. I'm very excited to do this with our kids. Like I said last week, I've never been a part of something like this, um, which is odd if you've been in church for a long period of time because stuff like this happens a lot. There's lots of opportunities. But make sure uh, you get your pictures and join up. If you still want to join up, they let you join up late. There's cards out there. You don't get to be a part of the real party, but you get to be a part of sponsoring and helping a community on the other side of the globe. So make sure you do that. I am very excited this morning. I get geeked to preach almost every week. I get like, almost like I'm on drugs or something when it's a passage where I'm like, man, this is better than I thought, and I thought it was going to be great, and this is going to be so great, and you shouldn't do that ever as a teacher because I just put your expectation here. I don't care because I'm excited. Uh, this is our Lord and Savior, his last moments before his death, his last words before his death. Uh, this is a big deal. Jesus Christ, whether you believe in him or not, as who he says he is, the Jewish Messiah, the leader of the Christian faith, the one who's going to come back one day, he is the most important person in human history. All the data says that, and we get to look at his final moments here. And I want to start with a story that's actually local to this. Some of you maybe saw this, but in the Catholic Church, there was quite a dust-up recently here in Phoenix. Uh, and I just want to read the article so I don't mess up the words. But a Catholic priest here in Arizona resigned after he was found to have performed baptisms incorrectly throughout his career, rendering the rite invalid for thousands of people. 
The Catholic Diocese of Phoenix announced on its website that it had determined after careful study that Reverend Andres Arango had used the wrong wording in baptism performed up until June of 2021. He had been off by a single word. During baptisms in both English and Spanish, Arango used the phrase, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, instead of saying, I baptize you. It's not that the community baptized, one spokesperson said, a person incorporates them into the church, but it's Christ and Christ alone who presides at all these sacraments. Therefore, it is Christ who baptizes If you were baptized using the wrong words, that means your baptism is invalid and you are not baptized. This has been happening since 1995. I do not have an exact number of people affected, but I believe the number is in the thousands. So I came from a Catholic background. I wasn't a good Catholic. Some of you come from Catholic background. Some of you are still Catholic. We consider yourself Catholic. My mom still considers herself Catholic. The point here is not to talk about Catholic and Christian theology and how it all fits together. But that word there, invalid, is what I want to talk about. The baptism, this like focal point of faith, has been deemed invalid for thousands of people here in the city of Phoenix because the person who stands in my position said the wrong word. Just know, you guys are hosed if it comes down to me getting the right words. (laughs) And I think most of us don't struggle with uh, fitting into the Catholic theological system because we're Protestants. The Catholics in the room do. But I think all of us struggle with this. At what point is my stuff valid? At what point am I validated? When do I get to say, it's done, I'm good? Like before others, obviously, like we've got kids at all ranges and stages, and it's like, man, I have never been in a season of life where I feel more invalidated as a person, specifically through fathering. But as we, uh, vertically, as we think about us and God, we all struggle to feel validated. And it's not that we're putting our trust in priests to do their sacraments correctly, but we put our trust in ourselves to actually like live up to the standards we've placed over there in our lives. A lot of us think this way, forward thinking, like I, my validation is going to come from future improvements in my life. Those of you with addiction and struggle in that area, that's you possibly. I'm going to get better. I'm going to do better. And at some point, I will feel validation. I just want you to say that day has already come, and it hasn't come through any of us. Jesus said, it is finished. We're going to unpack the most beautiful words ever uttered. It's actually just one word in the original Greek. Tetelestai, it is finished. I want to pray and just ask the Spirit to prepare our hearts to hear words we all need to hear once again or maybe for the first time. Let's pray. Jesus, we are all working because there's still work to be done. But there is a particular work that has been finished that you say you finished. And our job is not to add to the work as if we're adding pennies to the billion-dollar savings you've already placed here. Our job is to trust that Jesus was right when he said it's finished. Help us to trust that. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's my sermon. It's real simple. It is finished. Jesus said that. Here's what we're going to walk through. The Father planned it. Jews missed it. The Romans executed it. The disciples witnessed it. And Jesus finished it. That's what we're doing here today. So it is finished. That's what Jesus said. It's finished. That's his tagline. It's finished. I came. I finished it. What did he finish? Like you walk into a conversation, a, a family environment, a work environment, and somebody says, it is finished. And then everyone leaves the room. What got finished? What was going on? Like how do we summarize what Jesus is saying when he says, it is finished? A.W. Tozier has probably the most beautiful, comprehensive quote of all that's wrapped up in those words. He says this, all things had been done which the law of God required. The law of God is a real thing. It required a lot finished. All things established which prophecy predicted. God, through the Spirit, through prophets, predicted that the Messiah was going to come in certain ways. Things were going to unfold, and all those finished. All things brought to pass which the types foreshadowed. That means Jesus is the true and better, true and better Passover, true and better bread of life, true and better Israel. Everything that God was doing as he whispered his story into existence through the Jews has been finished. It's finished. All things accomplished which the Father had given him to do. John 4, Jesus says, I came to do my Father's work. Finished. All things performed which were needed for our redemption. Then he summarized, nothing was left wanting. It's finished. All things finished. Jesus says it this way, it is finished. God had a work to be done here on earth. And here's the reality we ought to face. None of us were going to be the person to do the work necessary. Somebody had to be sent that could actually do the job that God wanted to do. To show what humanity should look like, how people should be treated, what Israel was really supposed to be about, what humanity was going to do as they faced opposition. What is the role here on earth? Jesus is the one sent here to be the perfect human and the true king, and it's finished. It's finished. Like, so many relationships we're in that there's strife. It's like there's work to be done that's not finished yet. And with the most important relationship in the universe, with God himself, Jesus says, hey, listen to me. It's finished. It's done. And here's how we got here. Here's the first thing. The Father planned it. Go to verse 28. Miss Genesee read it for us. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Why did we get here? How did we get here to this moment? Because God the Father planned it. And all throughout, we're going to see Scripture say, Scripture said this would happen. This was God's plan from the beginning. Just to take a little side turn and kind of camp out for a second. We've got a lot of younger people in here. We've got this thing called deconstruction that's kind of taken on a new reality. Deconstruction is simply this. You look at your faith and you start to pull it apart and examine it and you start to get rid of things that don't really fit with what you think should be faith or Jesus or God. It's a tricky process. Some of you know people in it right now. Here's what I want to say. The most like sexy pull in that direction for me is the idea of open theism. It's the most academically sort of lofty, and it's also like, okay, that, I could see why people are drawn to that. And open theism is, th is this. It's God is really kind of figuring out how things are going to plan out in the same time we are. Because here's why. 
if you have a relationship where one person is over the other and totally in charge and determines every step of the way with no ability for this person to interact at all, that is not a true relationship. So open theists would say, no, God is open to the future just like us. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. So he's existing in the moment with us. And some of you could be like, gosh, that sounds ridiculous. I get it. But also, you bump up against these pain points where you're walking into the most painful season of your life, and like your option is God is in control and could have fixed this, or God walked into this moment the same moment I did. Now, he's like a big brother that has a lot more to offer, but that's open theism. It's like we're kind of walking together with God through this. And I just want to say from the pulpit, unequivocally, that is not what the scriptures ever teach. That doesn't make it easy to trust what the scriptures teach, that God is truly in control of all things. But God has planned. Jesus says, knowing all that was finished, Jesus knew the plan of God because he was God and he was walking in the plan of God. God the Father is this great poet, this great uh, playwright, this great movie director, and he's written it out and Jesus is walking into his role and playing it perfectly. And all throughout the Bible, we see that. And even in this, go to John, uh, well, 28 there says, to fulfill scripture, Jesus says, I thirst. What scripture is there? Psalm 69 says this, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Check. Fulfilled. Verse 36, go down to verse 36. For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Scripture fulfilled. Why are Jesus' bones still intact? Because God planned it that way. Where do we get that from? Exodus, number. Psalm 34 says this. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then even in this, just in this little snippet, we get three scriptures said this would happen. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see that in uh, Revelation and Zechariah. It says this. For when they look on him on, on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Here's why is Jesus now at the cross saying his last words? Because the Father planned it to play out this way. That does not mean, check, oh, I trust that. That makes total sense to me. But that's what the scriptures teaches. That's the sort of tension of faith we live into. That God is in control, and God is in control of every moment. And it's especially true as we see Jesus at the cross. God the Father wanted this to happen this way, and it's happening this way. Prophecy will be fulfilled. I was reading a study as I was going through this. Just, I'm not a huge like prophecy guy. It just doesn't light my fire like some people. Some people, it's like, ah, prophecy, okay. You be you. But... Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecy. And I used to be a math teacher, and I used to love probability statistics, kind of how. And I was reading this study about this college professor who got together this big study trying to determine what's the odds of Jesus actually being able to fulfill all the prophecy they said he fulfilled. Just take Micah alone. Micah says he'll be born in Bethlehem. So these mathematicians got together how many people were in Bethlehem, how many people in the world. They thought one out of 300,000 are the odds that Jesus would fulfill that prophecy. And then they start to pile them up. Okay, let's look at these prophecies together. Let's stack them up together. And the way probability works, it's like, if this event happens, then you got to multiply by the next event. Not to get too nerdy, but it, like, the numbers get big quick. And they got to eight prophecies. And they said, Jesus, to fulfill these eight prophecies is one 
out of 10 to the 17th power. So 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, down to the 17th zero. Chance that Jesus could have done those eight prophecies. Meaning for a human, a mere human, to make up what Jesus did through the prophecies and through his actual life, death, and resurrection, the chances of that are 1 to 17, like not good. Not good at all. Worse than any sports odds you'll ever look at. So you stand there and you go, well, what do I make of this? Here's the answer. Somebody above all this, bigger than all this, is the one that made this happen. Because it did not depend on you and I to make these prophecies come true. It was God's plan. The Father planned it, and Jesus went through with it. That's why we can trust. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus did not happen by chance or myth. It happened because God planned it to happen this way. And some of us are figuring out our faith. The younger folks are trying to figure out if they trust their parents' thing. Just know, you look at math, you look at science, it all affirms and confirms that this is trustworthy. Doesn't make it easy, but it's trustworthy. Now, what about those closest to Jesus? This is impossible that this would happen this way. It's happening right before they rise. What did the Jews do with this moment? Their Messiah. Here's what the Jews did. They missed it. As he's on the cross, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people of the day, missed it. Where do I see that? Go to verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked, the, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Pause right there. So it's a day of preparation, so they're getting ready for Sabbath. Sabbath is when all work ceases, and it's also a high day, which means it's Sabbath during a holy time, Passover. So it's like extra special. It's a convergence of a lot of special things. So they do not want to be doing work. They don't want work to be done on the Sabbath. So they ask, hey, can you do me a favor? Let's end this quicker. Let's break his leg so we don't have to do work there. And we're going to read that he was already dead. But just here's what's happening. The people closest in terms of ethnicity, history, story, language, to the Messiah, the king of the universe, are busy doing religious duties while their king is lying there lifeless. There's a story, Mary and Martha, Jesus is there, it's when he's still alive. And Mary's sitting there just looking at Jesus. And Martha's sweeping all anxiously and nervously and stressed. And Jesus calls out one of them, Martha, you're missing it. There's a lot of work to be done all the time. But this, you and I, it's not always going to be here like this. And the Jews are busy doing religious duties and they miss the Messiah. Now, is this just a Jewish problem? Like, oh yeah, there's certain ethnicities that kind of have blind spots like that. No, it's a human problem. And part of this is showing religious people, like just so you know, you could be as close to Jesus, you could smell him on the cross and still be busy doing religious stuff. Don't miss him. The Jews missed him. He was right there. 
And they missed him. Hey, we got a way religion's done. Listen, our God spoke to Moses, spoke to Abraham, spoke to David. He's been speaking to us for a long time. And he told us to do certain things. We need to do stuff. And Jesus is right here. And they missed it. It's phenomenal, the story of God. It is so accurate to just how we function as humans. We are dense. And the Jews show it. What about the Romans? What about the world power at the time? Here's what the Romans did. They executed it. They are the ones that ultimately put Jesus to death. They killed him on a cross. Now, I don't want to get too, I was teaching a youth camp one time, or I was leading a youth camp, and I brought in a guest speaker, and his whole pitch on the last night, last night's where you try to get the girls to break up with their boyfriends and boys to throw away their phones. Back in the day, it was their CDs, whatever. Like, life change happens in this moment. We're done. Jesus, yes, forever. And his deal was, I'm going to walk through the crucifixion. He walked medically through it like, all the detail, and it was intense. And one girl gets up. I'm like, that's interesting. Where's Abby going? And she passes out in the hallway because it is a lot. So I don't want to, like, gore us with details, but just some of you heard this, but the, here's how you eventually die. Through constrained blood circulation, organ failure, or most commonly is you can no longer breathe because you can no longer pull yourself up to catch your breath and you die by asphyxiation. And the Romans perfected this. The Babylonians started it. There's an archaeological dig where found 3,000 people crucified in one moment. Back in the Babylonian time, they started this. The Romans took it and like, we're going to perfect this. And the thought is, we are going to scare people out of sinning by making them look at a cross and time and time again, human ways of getting rid of sin do not work. They perfected this. They killed him. Let's just watch how John describes it. Go to verse 32. Jews asked, can you take him down? We've got religious stuff to do. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, a thief and a criminal, and then of the other who had been crucified with him. So they probably used some version of a sledgehammer to break the legs so that there's no more possibility of pulling yourself up to speed death. But when they came to Jesus, verse 33, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Why? Because God planned it that way. And, earthly speaking, his punishment up to that point was so horrific that it had already killed him, taken all the life out of him. The Romans executed their crucifixion perfectly. The word crucifixion means out from the cross. It means this pain so bad. How do I even describe this? Cicero, a fan of Rome, says this. It is the most cruel and disgusting punishment. He goes on to describe crucifixion this way. The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, meaning no Roman should ever have to go through this. This is for those people but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. We should not even think, hear, or talk about this as civilized Roman citizens. It's a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him is a wickedness, and to put him to death is a parricide. What shall I say of crucifying? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. Hey, Rome, you're... You're crucifying these people, and your people say that's the worst possible thing. 
and Jesus steps down into earth, the world power at the day takes their most vile practice and places it on our Savior. And they execute it perfectly. They go to see him to break his legs, and he's already dead. And then what do they do? Verse 34. But one of the soldiers, a trained executioner, pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And a lot of people want to kind of, what's the blood and what's the water mean? It may mean a lot. It may just mean this. That's what came out of our dead Messiah when they pierced him. Some version of blood and some version of water-like substance. Why? Because he was dead. The most beautiful, loving, perfect human to ever live comes into the Roman civilization and takes on their worst. And Rome is just a picture of what's humanity like? Left to ourselves, what are we going to produce? We're going to produce what Rome produces. Rome gave us roads and all these ways to connect civilization through economy and cultural sort of mashups. It was the beginning of the internet, the beginning of a global economy. Rome started that. Yes, that's good. That's what heaven's going to be like. We're going to interact with all ethnicities. We're all going to come together at the city of God. Why? Because that's good. Rome did that. And Rome also gave us what Cicero says, I don't even want to talk about it. And Jesus did not shy away. He went right to the center of Rome to take on the cross. The Father planned it. The Jews missed it. The Romans executed it. What about the disciples? Here's what the disciples did. They witnessed it. And I put a little asterisk up there just to remind us, most disciples were too scared to be here in this moment. Like us in this room. Jesus is my guy. We're cowardly hiding because it's scary. Because the guy you trusted to be the Messiah is now being killed by the government you fear. But the disciples, at least some of them, witnessed it. Let's read how John describes it. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. I love this. This is John like his emotion comes into the text. I saw this. You have to believe this. Nowhere else do you see this. At the end of John 20, he says, I wrote these things so you might believe. But this is the one time John, who we're pretty sure this is the guy saying this, is saying, I saw it. Believe it. Why is he so passionate to write it into his, bi his biography he gets to write? I, no other moment in Jesus, he saw all these things. But this moment, he's like, I saw this. I think there's three good reasons why. First is he actually saw it. Just he's a witness. And he knows what he saw. I saw this. And you got to believe it. Like I was there. I saw this happen. Here's the second reason, I think. Is John, the Gospel of John is written probably 90 to 100 AD. And it's going to be passed out and read amongst the people. At the same time, other religious people are passing around their ideas of what happened. And a part of that is Gnostic stuff, which at its core is Jesus did not really have flesh. He was more like a hologram. Like those of you, anyone that loved the Super Bowl party is about 40, my age. Why? Because it was all 90s hip-hop. I loved it. And I was convinced, like, Tupac is going to be on there. He's going to be a hologram. I know it. 
He was not. I was disappointed. But the Gnostics had created this religion where Jesus just appeared to be in the flesh. So John's writing, I saw Jesus in the flesh on a Roman cross. I saw them pierce his side. I saw blood and water flow out. I saw the look in the soldier's eyes when he did this. I saw it. Pass this out. And John, I know, is thinking of cousins and friends and neighbors and coworkers who's going to be influenced and tempted by Gnostic thought that wants to say Jesus was just a thought. He was just sort of like this ghost-like figure. It's a, it's a good thing to have Jesus. It's no different than New Age stuff. My grandpa dated some interesting women when he was dating women out of Sedona. And you talk to him about what they believe, and it's very like, just kind of floats up here. It's like, so what did you say? Well, I said, no, 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 you didn't say anything. Well, I said, you know, life is about, that's not new. Sedona didn't create that. The devil created that. And it's been around since the cross, and they want to say Jesus did not really have flesh. The Muslims believe similarly. Not that he wasn't here. They believe he was a prophet, but they believe he was taken off the cross before he died. So whatever way you slice it, John is writing because he saw it, but he's also writing saying there is a true way to see this moment. And there are going to be false stories. I want you to know the truth. Believe me. But I think... Here's what I think mostly happened, is he was so impacted by this moment. Like, the man he loves most. And he watches him at the end of his life. I've only been in the room when one person died, my grandma, and it is a moment you don't forget. And he watched his Savior die, and he said, I saw this happen. I was there. He was the most heroic beautiful, wonderful, truthful, loving person we've ever seen during his life. And in death, he was exactly the same. He was beautiful and heroic and courageous. And I saw it. Believe it. If you don't believe it, believe it today. He really is who he says. And this really did happen this way. And here's my question for us as we get to Jesus' words. How would we describe this scene if we were there? I was playing basketball with the neighborhood kids the other day, just reliving the glory days. And I asked, hey, what do you guys think about this war in Ukraine and Russia? One kid, first grader, is like, what? What war? Another kid's like, I think, I think I'm going to go for Ukraine. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like, well, that's good. <laughs> like, what do you think about this war? I'm going to go for Ukraine. People at the cross, hey, what do you think? Like, let's transport ourselves. Like, what are the people thinking? Hey, what do you think? Like, picture you have to write the story about what just happened here. What just happened? What's going on? The Jews. You're writing for a Jewish newspaper that's going to get dispersed. What do you write? Another false Messiah finds his end. That whole peace thing doesn't work. What about the Romans? This doesn't even make it on the first page, second page. This is like so far down next to a Sudoku puzzle and a crossword. Like here's who was executed this weekend. John who stole. Tim who was a terrorist. And some guy who said crazy stuff to the Jewish people. End of story, this much story. What about the disciples? Like they're journaling. Peter hears that he dies. 
And if he's a journal like I am, you go and you're like, I'm so sad. My friend, I thought, I thought. Like, how do you encapture this moment? What do you say? Let's let Jesus, what does Jesus say about this moment? The first thing he says right before he dies, verse 28, is I thirst. Just a reminder that this is a very human, earthly thing that's happening. It's not some religious, crazy thing up in the clouds. Our Messiah is thirsty. He's offered a drink earlier on in other gospel passages on the way to the cross. Hey, drink this, and he refuses it. And commentators think it's because it provides some sort of pain relief. And Jesus is like, no, I want to take this punishment fully. He rejects that punishment. But then on his cross, seconds, moments before he dies, he says, I thirst. And they give him sour wine. Why? Because he's thirsty. And probably so he can wet his throat so he can say one last thing. What do they do? Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And his throat gets water for the first time in a while. And he uses his last moment, this side of the cross, to do this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I don't care what the Jews think of this moment. I don't care what the Romans think of this moment. I don't care what anyone thinks about this moment. What does Jesus think about this moment? He says, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai, it is completed. It's a financial term. It's what you used to put on loans. Hey, this is paid off. The day I'm praying for with my house, done. But more than that, it's a funky Greek word that English people don't have categories for. It's called perfect verb. It's something that happened in the past that has ongoing future results. It happened in the past, but just so you know, the results of this are going to last forever. Jesus says it is finished, done. Everything that God wanted to do and have done is finished. And who did it? Jesus did it. It's done. So no Catholic or religious leader or pastor or father or mother or sister or brother can add anything to the finished work of what Jesus has done. You don't sign your name on a finished, completed loan. You just praise God that it's done. And Jesus says, just so you know, it is finished. In one of the most beautiful and sad pictures ever, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And in that moment, it is finished. Done. Here's my question. What are you going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? I mean, to tell us that's a great tattoo, so maybe that's your next step. I'm getting this tattooed somewhere on my body. John kind of tells us what all of us are going to do, though. Go to the very end, verse 37. John summarizes this. He says this. And again, another scripture says this. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Who's he talking about? Romans, Jews, guilty, innocent. He doesn't say, John is a beautiful writer, and he just says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. One author says this about this, the dead Jesus will remain the focal point of judgment, as did the living Jesus. At the foot of the cross, there stands those who reject the light as well as those who are attracted to it. The former look upon the pierced Jesus to be condemned, 
and the latter look upon him to be safe. But everyone, no moment in human history will receive the amount of attention that this does. Every human will face this moment where they look upon him whom they have pierced. John says they all will. Do you hear it is finished and cry tears of gratitude? Or do you hear it is finished and mock that you're the one to add to the work that God has already finished? He finished it. I'll end with this. A few weeks ago, I was outside this church, and this guy was out there kind of fumbling around. Just It wasn't Sunday. It was like Tuesday night or something. I said, hey, man, what's up? I don't, I've been standing outside this church quite a bit. I'm like, he's like about my age, late 30s. Started to ask him his story. He's like, I started making bad decisions at the end of high school. And it sounded like basically he's been in prison for two decades or so. Around the same time I got saved, end of high school, he starts making bad decisions. We're now about the same age. We're both standing outside the same church. He's like, I just can't go in. He's got his head all down. And I just start crying. And it's not even because of him. <laughs> it may sound selfish, but I start thinking about my kids. And they're going to make their own decisions. And at some point, I hope that our church is a church that anybody, any of my kids, no matter what they've chosen, the life they've lived, the regret and shame they have, stand outside Redemption North Mountain, wherever it exists then, and there's somebody who walks out and says, hey, come in. It's finished. It's done. Jesus finished it. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our Savior bowed his head in death so we could look up to him in life. It's finished. Some of you need to remember that. Some of you need to hear that for the first time and believe it and trust it. Jesus finished the work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we all sense and feel validation or lack of validation in a variety of ways. A lot of us will believe and trust these words with our minds, but it's a struggle to believe these with our hearts. So God, just help us. I pray in this moment that your spirit would whisper to those who need to hear your whispers that it is finished, that you would shout to those who need to hear it is finished, that we would all walk out of here more confident, more bold, not because any of us have added anything to your work, but because we've seen that you finished the work and we trust it. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We get to respond now.